Success isn't always about greatness. It's about consistency. Consistent hard work leads to success. Greatness will come. Dwayne Johnson. Man's time here is finite, but the influence of a man is infinite. The question is what shall we do with the daylight that remains? Alright guys, here we go again. Today we're going to talk about the TED Talk, Change Your Mindset, Change the Game by Dr. Alia Crum. I love that TED Talk. Uh, We're going to get into it here in a minute, but then we're also going to reference several other books, including Atomic Habits, The Comfort Crisis, and David Goggins' uh, Can't Hurt Me. So I'm a big fan of New Year's resolutions, and with 2023 just around the bend here, uh, if you want to become a better version of yourself or uh, have different results on some worthy cause, You know, I think this is a great time to sort of look back and take assessment on how was 2022? What did we learn? What was right? What was wrong? What can we do going forward that will improve our lives, improve ourselves, or get us different results? So if you want to end 2023 as a better version of yourself than in recent years, you're going to have to change a few things in the game you're playing, right? So you'll need to identify some specific behaviors and action items that you are going to implement into your lifestyle, upgrade a few things, or completely change the the direction you're headed that will bring the results you desire. So that's exactly why I wrote my latest ebook. Just a quick plug for you guys. It's called Ingrained, Three Steps to Achieve Any Goal. It's a very short ebook, but I'm intended to be that way, just a short workbook where it basically outlines, here's why people fail at implementing new habits. So here's kind of some of the flip side. How can we turn that over and say, here's the three things that are important for succeeding in executing a new habit and making it last a lifetime, as opposed to a few intense weeks in January and then slowly reverting back to your old lifestyle and just settling for basically whatever's already at play. So I want you guys to check that out. And that that little ebook is actually on sale right now. It'll cost you about three bucks to purchase that and uh, set yourself on the right track as you set your New Year's resolutions, set them in the right way, get your tempo and pace correct, get uh, get all the things in line so that you can make lasting impact in 2023. And by the end of the year, you can look back on your assessment and with confidence, knowing that you've changed a lot. So getting back to Dr. Alia Crumb's TED Talk, uh, she has a few different examples of how changing your mindset changes the game. The first one is the administration of morphine to patients undergoing cardiothoracic surgeries. And back in the day, this was a very intense surgery, still sometimes today, but they would split, you know, split the chest open. They might have to break or cut ribs in on the sides, things like that to try and gain access to your heart and lungs. And so these patients would receive a specific dose of morphine to reduce the pain. And they made a subtle change in the way they administer this morphine. And it had a dramatic effect on the patients. So the first group got an injection from a provider 
of the morphine. So the patient was well aware of what was going on and had been administered to by a provider. The other group got it from an IV pump and were apparently less aware of the administration of the medication. Well, the two groups had a dramatic difference in the amount of pain reduction. Uh, The ones who were administered to by the provider had a significantly better result in the morphine than those who were less aware of its administration, even though they both got the exact same dose. So the second example that Dr. Crum gives is with this group of, I think it was like 74 housekeepers in hotels. And they did their best to really understand the lifestyle of these women. And then they went through this process of educating them on the fact that their job actually includes a lot of activity that counts towards the recommendations for a healthy lifestyle as far as exercise, like things like vacuuming or walking it up and down the stairs or down the halls, things like that are very similar to going to the gym. And then they tracking these women came back later to see if there had been any noticeable physiological changes or as well as satisfaction. It turns out there were physiological changes in these women's bodies and they also expressed more satisfaction at work. So in somehow changing their mindset towards the work that they were already doing had positive impacts in their life, both mentally, emotionally, and physically. So the last example that I'm going to offer from Dr. Crumb's talk, though she has more, is actually her own work along with her colleagues. So they paid college students $75 to come in and eat a milkshake while being monitored. And they would actually place an IV so that they could draw blood samples and and track ghrelin levels in the blood. Ghrelin is produced by the gut and it signals to your brain hunger. So it basically says, I'm hungry. We need to seek out some food soon because we are going to get very low on calories and we need some replacements. So it reduces your metabolism slightly and starts saying, we need food. When you eat a meal, The ghrelin decreases, your metabolism kind of kicks back up, and you feel satisfied. That hunger urge is gone. Well, they took these students in, had them hooked up to monitor these ghrelin levels, and gave them milkshakes. They divided them into two different groups. The first group got a diet milkshake, 140 calories, no added sugars. Uh, The label was very much a diet milkshake label. (laughs) And they monitored those students. The second group got a 600 calorie milkshake, just the ideal sweet treat. And they monitored their ghrelin levels. Well, as you might assume, the group that got the 600 calorie milkshake had three times greater ghrelin reduction than the ones that got the diet milkshake of only 140 calories. But here's the trick. It turns out that only the labels were different and the milkshake was actually the exact same for both groups, proving that if we change our mindset around the game we're playing, our body literally reacts differently. So the people who only got the quote-unquote 140-calorie milkshake still had some ghrelin in their body saying, I need more calories compared to the other group. So how can we change our mindset 
around a variety of things in our life. Because obviously diet is one thing that we constantly talk about and work on, but how can you change your mindset about exercise? How can you change your mindset about your relationships and how you approach your day? Or how could you change your mindset about really difficult things like extreme exercise or cold plunges or uh, long days in the heat or Uh, What about difficult conversations with people you love or, you know, there's a variety of things that maybe if we could change our mindset, we could actually enjoy that more. We could get more positive benefit from it and our life in the future would be very different. So I just want to reference a few things out of these books I mentioned that can kind of help you change your mindset. So we're also kind of shifting towards consistency. When I first started prepping this episode, I was going to call it consistent effort inspires, creates, and wins. Specifically in the creates area, consistency and effort. That's the key. Those are the superpowers, right? So consistency creates literal change in the brain as Why We Sleep talks about or our episode on the brain a couple of weeks ago. Consistency helps you move past the novice level It allows the body to prepare for the anticipated activities of the day. Consistency takes ordinary people and turns them into experts, winners, and role models, right? Uh, A lot of people at very high levels of success in sports, in writing, in acting, in any kind of business you can think of are not actually super extra talented and, you know, freaks of nature, if you will. They just work very, very hard over a long period of time to achieve the results they get. So let's dive into these books and see what we can find here. So the first one is Atomic Habits. I'm just going to read a few highlights from this under chapter five, the best way to start a new habit. He says, in 2001, researchers in Great Britain began working with 248 people to build better exercise habits over the course of two weeks. The subjects were divided into three groups. The first group was the control group. They were simply asked to track how often they exercised. The second group was the motivation group. They were asked not to only track their workouts, but also to read some material on benefits of exercise. The researchers also explained to the group how exercise could reduce the risk of coronary heart disease and improve heart health. Finally, there was the third group. These subjects received the same presentation as the second group, which ensured that they had equal levels of motivation. However, they were also asked to formulate a plan for when and where they would exercise over the following week. Specifically, each member of the third group completed the following sentence. During the next week, I will partake in at least 20 minutes of vigorous exercise on this day, at this time, in this place. In the first and second groups, 35 to 38% of people exercised at least once per week. Interestingly, the motivational presentation given to the second group seemed to have no meaningful impact on the behavior, but 91% of the third group exercised at least once per week, more than double the normal rate. The sentence they filled out is what researchers refer to as an implementation intention, which is a plan you make beforehand about when and where to act. That is how you intend to implement a particular habit. So two things I want to talk about here. First of all, he says that the group that just had motivation didn't have any extra uh, benefit. And she, Dr. Crum actually addresses that. The problem is you got to trick your brain into it. So my personal belief is that consistency helps with that. As you become consistent, your brain just starts to sort of 
uh, ingrain new pathways and say, look, this is a part of our life. We might as well get used to it. That's not necessarily backed by Dr. Crum. That's my own theories. But I think consistency changes the way your brain perceives activities. And um, the other thing that that James Clear is pointing out here is that actually writing down a very specific plan of action was very impactful on how these people actually executed. So in my book, there's a little formula that that basically says that same thing. I'm going to work out at this time for this long at this intensity so that you know exactly what you're going to do to execute that new behavior in a very simple way. And another thing is start very small so that it doesn't disrupt your own life so much that it's, it's very apparently painful or disrupt the lives of your loved ones that you live with, right? So a couple of things there. Next, I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 11. He says, walk slowly, but never backwards. On the first day of class, Jerry Yulesman, a professor at the University of Florida, divided his film photography students into two groups. Everyone on the left side of the classroom, he explained, would be in the quantity group. They would be graded solely on the amount of work they produced. On the final day of class, he would tally the number of photos submitted by each student. 100 photos would be rated an A, 90 photos, a B, 80 photos, a C, and so on. Meanwhile, everyone on the right side of the room would be in the quality group. They would be graded only on the excellence of their work. They would only need to produce one photo during the semester, but to get an A, it had to be a nearly perfect image. At the end of the term, he was surprised to find that all the best photos were produced by the quantity group. During the semester, these students were busy taking photos, experimenting with compositions and lighting, testing out various methods in the darkroom, and learning from their mistakes. In the process of creating hundreds of photos, they honed their skills. Meanwhile, the quality group sat around speculating about perfection. In the end, they had little to show for their efforts other than unverified theories and one mediocre photo. <laughs> so again, kind of bringing me back to this consistency and repetition. If you do things over and over and over, your brain sort of makes these pathways. You commit things to subconscious memory. Your body can prepare for the future state that's coming. You start to notice nuance. It makes you an expert because when you do something over and over and over, and then suddenly you kind of have an epiphany or you see someone else demonstrate it and you go, oh, that probably would help. Now you can implement it because you're so familiar with what you're already doing. You notice the change and you implement that change. And then the same thing happens again and you implement new change and you implement new change and you implement new change. And over time, because you're becoming so good at what you already do, you can notice what's different from somebody else or another example or what you would like to have in the future. And you can implement those things, right? Um, I've experienced that in the podcast world. Honestly, <laughs> one of my weakest spots early in life was I was not a very good reader and I'm not a very fast reader still, but my comprehension was good. So it was always this confusing state. Um, so now I, I read a ton. My reading is faster and faster and my comprehension is still very good. But then when it came to actually putting it on film, I had this crappy laptop with a horrible camera and the quality was just awful. And it was, I actually started on YouTube, which was funny. They're, they're awful. The editing's poor. The filming is poor. The quality of content was poor, et cetera. But then I upgraded my laptop, got a better webcam. Then I 
bought a external webcam that was much better. Then I bought a microphone. Then I upgraded my microphone. Then I upgraded my platform. And then all the practices made things smoother and my editing got better. And it's like piece upon piece, it just gets better and better and better. And when I check today, we're ranked number 30 in the education category on Apple Podcasts. So that clearly demonstrates that something is worth listening to on here. <laughs> so anyway, it's just incremental progress. Okay. I want to go to the next piece. This is in the comfort crisis. So on page 217, I'm jumping in the middle of a paragraph. He says, a study funded by the UK's Ministry of Defense discovered that people who engaged in a mentally demanding task while exercising increased their time to exhaustion a relative 300% more compared to a group who zoned out while doing the exact same 12-week exercise program. So basically, if your mind is distracted by something else, you have this capacity to keep going many times further in, you know, in difficult exercise. Well, I'm going to continue from the book. He has, he has more examples here. He says on page 219, sometime in the mid 1990s, a new idea eventually occurred to Timothy Noakes, MD, PhD, director of the exercise science and sports medicine research unit at the university of Cape town. He thought that because we activate muscle by way of our brain, our brain must also be responsible for determining how long, hard, and fast we push ourselves. He called the idea the central governor theory and began conducting research. Over three decades, he's shown that exercise-induced fatigue is predominantly a protective emotion. It's a physiological state that has little to do with the person's physical limits. Basically, that physical exhaustion is an emotional state and that your body can just keep going and going and going far beyond what you are telling yourself. <laughs> and lastly, I want to bring out David Goggins, who is the person that represents what I just read. David Goggins basically preaches the same thing over and over and over that your mind is weak, but your body is strong. And so the problem is not trying to work on your body. Your problem is you need to work on your mind so that when it says, I'm tired, I'm ready to stop, I'm exhausted, you just say, BS, we're going. And then you keep going, right? And so as you can strengthen your mind, your body seems to just do everything you require of it. So I'm going to read some of David Goggins' book, Chapter 8, Talent Not Required. The night before the first long-distance triathlon in my life, I stood with my mother on the deck of a sprawling $7 million beach house in Kona, watching the moonlight play on the water. Most people know Kona, a gorgeous town on the west coast of the island of Hawaii, and triathlons in general, thanks to the Ironman World Championships, although there are far more Olympic distance and shorter sprint triathlons held around the world than there are Ironman events. It was the original Ironman in Kona that placed the sport on the international radar. It starts with a 2.4-mile swim followed by a 112-mile bike ride and closes with a marathon run. Add to that stiff and shifting winds and blistering heat corridors reflected by harsh lava fields, and the race reduces most competitors to open blisters of raw anguish. But I wasn't here for that. I came to Kona to compete in a less celebrated form of even more intense masochism. I was there to compete for the title of Ultraman. Over the next three days, I would swim 6.2 miles, ride 261 miles, and run a double marathon covering the entire perimeter of the Big Island of Hawaii. 
Once again, I was raising money for the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. And because I'd been written up and interviewed on camera after Badwater, I was invited by a multimillionaire I'd never met to stay in his absurd palace on the sand in the run up to the Ultraman World Championships in November 2006. It was a generous gesture, but I was so focused on becoming the very best version of myself, his glitz didn't impress me. In my mind, I still hadn't achieved shit. If anything, staying in his house only inflated the chip on my shoulder. He would never have invited my wannabe thug ass to come chill with him in Kona luxury back in the day. He only reached out because I'd become somebody a rich guy like him wanted to know. Still, I appreciated being able to show my mom a better life, and whenever I was offered a taste, I invited her to experience it with me. She'd swallowed more pain than anyone I'd ever known, and I wanted to remind her that we'd climbed out of that gutter. While I kept my own gaze locked at sewer level, we didn't live in that $7 a month place in Brazil anymore. But I was still paying rent on that MFR, and will be for the rest of my life. The race launched from the beach beside the pier in downtown Kona, the same start line as the Ironman World Championships. But there wasn't much of a crowd for our race. There were only 30 athletes in the entire field compared to over 1,200 in the Ironman. It was such a small group I could look every one of my competitors in the eye and size them up, which is how I noticed the hardest man on the beach. I never did catch his name, but I'll always remember him because he was in a wheelchair. Talk about heart. That man had a presence beyond his stature. He was immense. Ever since I'd started up in Buds, I'd been in search of people like that. Men and women with an uncommon way of thinking. One that surprised me about military special operations was that some of the guys lived so mainstream. They weren't trying to push themselves every day of their lives, and I wanted to be around people who thought and trained uncommon 24-7, not just when duty called. That man had every excuse in the world to be at home, but he was ready to do one of the hardest stage races in the world, something 99.9% .9 of the public wouldn't even consider, and with just his two arms. To me, he was what ultra racing was all about, and it's why after Badwater, I'd become hooked on this world. Talent wasn't required for this sport. It was all about heart and hard work, and it delivered relentless challenge after relentless challenge, always demanding more. So first of all, we're talking about an insane level of physical challenge. And this dude's going to do it in a wheelchair with just his arms. And that it just goes to show that your mind is more important than your body. So making sure that you change the way you think about things is going to change the way you execute things. So Goggins goes on to explain his own experience here in the swim. It's really choppy. It's a rough swim. He's meandering. He's swallowing water and puking water. It's, it's rough. He says, because of the pain, my poor mechanics and the strong current, I swam a meandering line that stretched to seven and a half miles. All of that in order to clear what was supposed to be a 6.2 mile swim. My legs were jelly when I staggered to shore and my vision rocked like a teeter totter during an earthquake. I had to lie down then crawl behind the bathrooms where I vomited again. Other swimmers gathered in the transition area, hopped into their saddles, and pedaled off into the lava fields in a blink. We still had a 90-mile bike ride to knock off before the day was done, and they were getting after it while I was still on my knees. Right on time, those simple questions bubbled to the surface. Why the F am I even out here? I'm not a triathlete. I'm chafed to hell, sick, and the first part of the ride is uphill. 
Why do you keep doing this to yourself, Goggins? I sounded like a whiny bitch, but I knew finding some comfort would help. So I paid no attention to other athletes who eased through their transition. I had to focus on getting my legs under me and slowing my spun-out mind. First, I got some food down a little at a time. Then I treated the cuts under my arms. Most triathletes don't change their clothes. I did. I slipped on some comfortable bike shorts and a lycra shirt. And 15 minutes later, I was upright in the saddle and climbing into the lava fields. For the first 20 minutes, I was still nauseous. I pedaled and puked, replenished my fluids and puked again. Through it all, I gave myself one job, stay in the fight, stay in it long enough to find a foothold. Ten miles later, as the road rose onto the shoulder of a giant volcano and the incline increased, I shook off my sea legs and found momentum. Riders appeared ahead like bogeys on a radar, and I picked them off one by one. Victory was a cure-all. <laughs> He's a crazy man. He just goes no matter what. And basically consistency, staying in the game, giving effort day in and day out will change the way you live your life. It'll change your mentality towards the thing that you're trying to achieve. Now, I don't recommend starting out like Goggins. As far as your New Year's resolutions, I would actually reduce it down very, very small to something that you can do within a few minutes or even you know 10 minutes or less. Execute on that every single day and start to change your brain, change your mind about the activity. As James Clear says, perfect the art of showing up. Make sure that you're doing what you told yourself you would do, even if that's a very, very small thing. And then slowly add to it over time. Continue to change your brain, change your brain, change your brain. Uh, the last thing I'll mention is what Andrew Huberman says about dopamine spikes. Dopamine is the hormone in our bodies that's most associated with satisfaction. So also, when you eat a meal, dopamine rises. When you drink alcohol, dopamine rises. When you have sex, dopamine rises. When you look at your phone and scroll social media, dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. Okay, so it's a satisfaction drug in your brain. If you want to change the way your body and brain react to a specific activity, especially if it's dopaminergic, such as exercise, which increases dopamine, then you should suppress dopamine spikes directly before and after that specific behavior. And while you're doing that behavior, tell yourself, positive feedback about the activity. So if you hate exercising, or even if you like it, but you're trying to make sure that you're intensely exercising every day, don't do anything that will spike your dopamine, such as scroll social media before the exercise. While you're exercising, tell yourself that you love this feeling, you love this progress, this is important, this is amazing. And then after your exercise, don't do anything else that would spike your dopamine for some time. So anyway, there are some awesome tricks out there to help yourself set your 2023 in motion on the right foot. Go check out my new ebook. Please purchase that from the website, bronsonwilkes.com. And uh, I'll, of course, link some of these resources in the show notes so that if you want to check them out or purchase them yourself from Amazon, uh, they'll be available down there. Once again, I appreciate you guys showing up and we'll catch you on the next one.
Hey, thanks for listening to the entire episode. As a token of gratitude, I want to give you a discount on my book, Ingrained. Head over to bronsonwilkes.com store and download Ingrained for less than a dollar with the coupon code GOALS, G-O-A-L-S.